Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And even though it's summertime up here in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, when things usually slow down here in the salon, we have been graced with the uh, financial support of several of our fellow saloners who either sent in a direct donation or who made a donation for my pay-what-you-can novel, The Genesis Generation. And these generous souls are Murray G., Ben M., Mark C., Graham W., Paul B., Logan T., Robert H., Stuart P., Bradley N., and Carl H. And I thank all of you uh, ever so much. You know, your support just means a lot to me, as does the support of so many of our other fellow saloners who post comments on our Notes from the Psychedelic Salon website or who link to us or simply tell their friends about these podcasts. You know, it uh, all helps to keep this circus going, which means that uh, we're going to continue finding more and more of the others each week. So thank you for being a part of the salon. It's uh, good to know that you're here. And uh, now for today's program. Uh, Originally, I wasn't going to include uh, the talk I'm going to play right now. It's uh, by Kathleen or Kat Harrison, uh, mainly because in it she refers to... uh, slides that she was projecting or showing along with her talk. But due to the overwhelming and uh, extremely positive response that I received about the previous talk by Kat, uh, the one that I played just recently, well, I thought that I'd better play this one anyway, as uh, there's actually quite a lot in it that can be gained without seeing the projected images. In fact, uh, in the previous talk of Cats that I played a couple of weeks ago, she even mentioned that she used her slides as notes for her talk. So we're actually getting to hear her complete presentation. Uh, we just don't get to look at her notes. And uh, as in all of these recordings that were made on the old cassette tape decks, well, uh, there's a brief pause around the 45-minute mark when the tape came to an end and had to be turned over. Ah, the trials and tribulations of ancient tech, huh? But at least we had portable recorders way back then. (laughs) Way back then, which was only ten years ago, you know. (laughs) Anyway, here now is Cat Harrison speaking in a little room on a hilltop near the ruins at Palenque, Mexico, one January evening in 2001. Some of these... um these animated presences it's uh it's in the great tradition of animism which i think i see is having a rebirth i'm happy to say um i think that the reanimation of nature in our perception is really one of the um best directions we can go in this very uh awkward dangerous time that we live in where we have turned our attention as a, a globally so much toward matter and So I am encouraged to see that whenever it endures in Native people or reaches into those of us who have been removed from our indigenous um, backgrounds for generations and generations and have lost our own traditions. Um, I do think that they're deep in all of us. You know, it's not that long ago that we were all indigenous somewhere and uh, that we have the capacity to... to, um, 
receive that kind of perception and then use it in our own um, in our own lives. And that's really what I'll talk about tomorrow morning. You're going to get a bit of me here because tomorrow morning is my talk about ritual and um, how that might work with psychoactive plants. So. Uh, I had traveled in Mexico a great deal, but eight years ago, seven, eight years ago, I um, wanted to, I had a problem, I had a, a heart problem, and it was actually a medical problem, and I had some advice on a medicine that I might take, but I would have to take it for the rest of my life, and I uh, didn't want to do that, and I, you know, wore a heart monitor for a little bit, and, you know, had the problem described, and it was it was uh, scary and I, and I was young to have that kind of limitation and, and I had always this interest in native healers. I hadn't been traveling out on my own for a while, raising a family and I was a single mom and you know, certain the things that keep you home and busy. And um, although I did always manage to travel and sometimes took my kids and if you don't know, uh, Finn is here, he's my son, he's here somewhere and he's, there he is, the tall, well-spoken guy. And. Uh, <laughs> Um, so he traveled with me sometimes too when he was little and um, anyway so I decided that I wanted to go to the Mazatec people the people of northern Mexico that I'd heard so many uh, good things about and how deeply they understood the plants and the mushrooms that they worked with and how alive their um, their practices were and I asked my friend Brett Blosser whom I know um, maybe all of you know but some of you certainly do a fine anthropologist doing a lot of work with the Wichol these days um, about uh, his friends in the Mazatec area. I knew he had hiked through there as a spelunker and like this part of Mexico it is um, limestone riddled with caves and um, very porous, a lot of water underground and he had done some um, spelunking in there and had encountered <coughs> an old shamanic family and uh, told me about it a couple of years before that. So he kindly, he trusted me and he kindly gave me um, some directions and I found my way to these people. So that's who I'm going to be talking about. They were the first people I went to and then I have returned. Um, actually, I'm going back after this seminar. That'll be my fourth trip back to the Mazatec people. I do find uh, that in dealing with native people, people who live close to the earth and who don't travel and are not worldly in terms of um, having witnessed all the kinds of things we have, you know, but they're absolutely brilliantly intelligent and, and sensitive. Um, but I do find that they like uh, cycles, cycles in their lives, cycles in their calendars, uh, an awareness that things change and return, change and return. And part of that is as an anthropologist, ethnobotanist, when you go to meet people and you ask for the gift of their knowledge and their time and you make your exchanges with them um, in, in trade for that, but nevertheless you're really cultivating a very intimate relationship. And so returning to them, even if there's a fairly long time, couple of years between visits, is very reassuring to them. That's how the world works. And, and, and so as an ethnobotanist who has allies in different parts of Latin America especially, I do 
when you cultivate a relationship with a family or with a healer, you take it very seriously and the likelihood is you are going to be returning to work with that person or those people again, and which may limit the number of people that you're going to encounter in your life's work because you're going to have these people to return to and then those people to return to. And uh, so this will be my fourth trip back to them. And I usually go and stay about five or six weeks, sleep on their floors, get a place, rent a little place of my own so I give them peace and so I get some peace and so I have some time to write up my notes, go away for a few days and stay by myself and then come back and stay for a few days with them. Just live their lives, you know, help them harvest, collect what they need, clean beans, uh, do ceremony, um, watch the world go by, watch the grandchildren, all of that. It's a it's a wonderful immersion in their worldview to go talk with them about their plants and about those things which are most most sacred to them. So I'm going to start the slides though because I could probably keep talking and forget I had slides. And, I, and I'm going to sit down here. I don't need to really, really point anything out so I'm just going to sit beside the slide projector and um, and push the button. So I've put a, just a couple of slides of old um, paintings when the, um, when the um, Spanish first came to Mexico Many things went on, but they destroyed uh, many of the, the books, the records of the native people because they were attempting to change their worldview and lay, you know, the European one on over, as you, as you, I'm sure know. But some uh, people, especially some of the the friars, some of the um, religious people who came, did recognize that there was an incredible and, and very, um, to them, unusual way of seeing among the Indians and they asked for them to paint their mythology or their visions and a few of these records have come down to us. So uh, this is just to illustrate this concept of the plant-human relationship and the constancy of transformation and of interpenetration of these realms that is part of the worldview of the people of Mexico. I'm not sure which is forward here. Yes. And then um, many of the native plants here, the plants that were used in medicine and ritual and offerings and all of that, uh, were recorded. Food plants were recorded in these paintings, which are more like the European uh, folk botanical illustrations that were 16th century, that were occurring in... Um, in Europe at the time. They were actually a little uh, more detailed and more scientific in Europe at that time, but not a lot more. Botanical illustration hadn't, didn't really flower until a little bit later in Europe. And uh, so these paintings are interesting because they do portray many botanical features, but they also have some sort of fantastical features. They always include the roots, which I think is so interesting, you know. So you really get the, um, the whole all aspects that the plant presents to you. It's flowers, it's leaves, it's structure, it's roots, it's fruits, all of these things. Um, this is a uh, drawing, an end paper that I did uh, for this book, The Sacred Mushroom Seeker. It was a, uh, an anthology um, of articles uh, honoring R. Gordon Wasson, the American uh, banker, mycologist, who you probably also know of, who's, who's done, who did a, a great deal of 
research into mushrooms around the world with his wife Valentina Wasson and um, discovered mid-career, mid-passionate hobby, uh, the as yet, well, it had been discovered previously but not popularly um, described, uh, the use of mushrooms and the ongoing use of mushrooms in religious practices among the Indians of Mexico. So he traveled through Oaxaca, and here I will actually point out some things. Um, this, in case you don't know where you are, this is Mexico, all down here. This is the Yucatan Peninsula. We're down in here right now. This square... Uh, okay, this is the only slide I have to do this on. So this is the state of Oaxaca. This square is this square up big. Oh, it's quite blurry, but... Um, and this northern Oaxaca right in here up toward Veracruz and Puebla is uh, where the Mazatec, Sierra Mazateca is. There, um, the, the Sierra Madre, the mother mountains coming down from the, the Rocky Mountains in the States, it's the same, the spine of the Americas. It goes all the way down and then picks up again in the Andes all the way down through South America. And it breaks up in here into the Sierra Madre or, uh, Occidental, the West, and the Oriental um, the east, and these people live in these mountains of the Sierra Madre Oriental. Uh, the plants that uh, Wasson was looking for were portrayed in here. Uh, this one is Salvia divinorum on this side. I'll talk more about these. The Psilocybe mexicana, little mushrooms up here. Psilocybe serolescens over here. Amanita muscaria, um, he thought might be um, in use and looked for it the use of it in Mexico, but to my knowledge, didn't discover the use of that. It does grow here. It grows up in these mountains of Chiapas even. And uh, the, the morning glory, Ipomia violacea, over here. Um, this is a little rendition of a mushroom stone, and that's something of which um, a couple of hundred, I believe, of those have been found in the Americas, in rather in uh, southern Mexico, Guatemala, up to about two feet tall. They're carved stone figures of people or animals seemingly transforming into or transforming out of mushrooms and um, they are, were not sure you know, how and when they were used but they are beautiful icons and you may have seen pictures of those. So here we are in the um, mountains of the Sierra Madre. This is where the Mazatecs live. It's very rugged. Uh, it's been uh, compared in literature to well, Mexico, all of central Mexico, a piece of crumpled brown paper, if you imagine that, laying on a table. That's the, the surface of Mexico. And um, these rugged mountains, and, and you see in the front here, you see uh, corn, maize, which came from Mexico. Um, originally was teased out of the grasses of Mexico, Teosinte, long, long time ago, and is... Uh, and is one of the primary sacred plants of the Americas, obviously has changed life around the world since it spread post-conquest into the cuisine of every continent. And um, these mountains uh, have done a wonderful thing. As mountains do, they preserve little pockets of information, genetic information in plants, um, habitat of all sorts for all sorts of, of creatures, life forms, very special little niches that can only exist at a certain altitude, a certain latitude, a certain humidity, a certain 
you know, north-south facing direction to the light, and the same with cultures. And so if you know, for instance, about the, uh, the many food plants that come from the Americas and have, uh, and have been spread around the world, you know that many of them come from the Andes, where the same phenomenon goes on, this preservation of diversity, the development of diversity, and then the preservation of it. So that butterflies as well, if you can imagine, everything that lives in one of these deep canyons is going to have its own little world unto itself. And and the mountains themselves act as barriers for them to move across and interbreed, pollinate whatever their form of reproduction is, to the other side. And so there's this natural preservation that happens with mountains and with people living in, in them as well. So in the Andes, for instance, you get incredible diversity of language, culture, uh, the dialects, the music of every, of every mountainside and valley, and the same here in the mountains of Mexico, especially up in this rugged area. And it meant that, um, I'll go on a bit here, it meant that when uh, the Spanish came in, uh, this is the main town of, of uh, the Sierra Mazateca, Huautla de Jimenez. It's, this is in a, Huautla in a good mood. It can be a pretty muddy, gray, forbidding, uh, <laughs> funky town, too. But under a full moon on a lovely night, it looks like this. And, um, <laughs> and I'll go on to the next. Uh, and this is the, a little bit lower in these mountains, where these valleys soften a little bit, and you just see the density of foliage. So these dialects and the, all the practices and the use of these psychoactive plants and, and mushrooms and the, way, the ways that people use them, even though they are all speaking the same language, the Mazatec language, um, has great diversity from one neighborhood almost to the next. Also, um, at least uh, as of 10 years ago, they were still estimating that 40% of the Mazatec people were monolingual still. They only spoke Mazatec, not Spanish. This is 500 years after conquest, where an effort was made, of course, to convert everyone to a certain way of seeing, to a religion, to a language, to an economy. And um, it's an example when you find monolingual people who did not take on the conqueror's language, that if, that la if their original language is preserved and it's not even diluted with the outsider's language, then probably many other things are preserved as well in terms of their cultural life and probably even their botanical life, at least the cultivars that they um, protect and, and uh, propagate. So this is the male and female flowers of maize, of the corn, that I just wanted to uh, be sure we understand that sacred plants uh, bridge many categories. And, you know, my work in talking, I, I, I talk a lot to the um, herbal community in the United States, and I am blessed to have been, I don't know, I guess I had lots of friends who were herbalists, and they recognized gradually that they too are ethnobotanists of a different, uh, of a certain stripe, and so I've been invited into many of these very large, uh, this thriving herbal uh, idea marketplace exchange of, of plants and techniques and all of that. And, uh, and, and I also teach it part-time at a university. And what I try to do, the way that I talk about psychoactive plants in the so-called straight world, is that I 
just make sure that I'm talking about the whole spectrum of plants and of human plant use and of that um, ancient and intimate um, set of relationships and then I can embed the psychoactive plants in that instead of pulling them out like they're a separate category, like they're drugs, like they're not plants, or just talking about them by themselves. And, you know, I, I go to native plant societies and talk and old people with blue hair never thought about taking a drug just get so interested and excited. And there is a way that we can, you know, that we can infiltrate lovingly and effectively. <laughs> um, and I don't mean infiltrate, I mean, you know, kind of joking, but I just think that we, we over-categorize, so I try to embed it. And so, therefore, corn is a sacred plant. There you go. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, a bit of the background on what people, who people um, invoke in using these sacred plants in the Mazatec world. Um, this is the Virgin of Guadalupe. She, if you don't know the story, here you are in Mexico. She is the, the patron saint or the matron saint of Mexico. Um, the, of course, the Catholics who came had their uh, Christian icons and deities and Christ and the Virgin, his mother, were uh, primary among them. Um, and there have always been movements also in European Christianity that some of them worshipped Mary more than they did um, her son. And, of course, there's a lot of thinking about how that comes out of old goddess thinking, old world uh, goddess uh, religions that preceded Christianity. But that's a big topic. So here in, here in uh, Mexico, what we saw was that people had many deities of all sorts and all genders and all animal types for the various forces that they interacted with in their daily life. And when the, um, when the Spanish came with their uh, whole pantheon of uh, Christian elements, the native people tended to take on some or adapt many to match up with the, the even richer pantheon that they had and, you know, I really, really admire Native people in the Americas for being um, experts at adaptation. They just seem to be able to bend and incorporate and go forward, survivalists. Of course, disease wiped out 90, 95% of the Native people of the Americas all the way through, but of, and that would be an incredible disaster to any people. But of those left, they kept on... Um, looking at what came to them, looking at what worked, very pragmatic, you know, and staying spiritual at the same time. So this is a, a painting of, the, of Juan Diego, an Indian in the early 1500s, shortly after Cortez arrived here, who had uh, three visions of this female deity on a mountain which is now encompassed by Mexico City. And, um, and went each time to tell the priests that he had seen this this incredible deity, and it was actually associated with plants too, because as he was walking up the mountain, 
um, this, this hill over Mexico City, he, one of the stories, at least there are many versions of this, but one of the stories is that he began to see plants that he had never seen before as he was walking up the hill. And then the plants began, it was very dry there, very arid, and, and he began to see lush plants and he saw even flowers that ha he had never seen before that had jewels set in them. And, and he knew something was going to happen. And then he saw the, the goddess. And so uh, he went back and told the priest that he had seen her and they said no you couldn't have you know you're an Indian she's not this is not who we're talking about and and he went back again and then again and and she graced him with uh, roses which were a Spanish flower treasured by the Spanish and he carried them in his mantle and somehow when he carried this evidence to the priest she her image was emblazoned on his on his um, weepil on his gown and so that now hangs in the Basilica to the Virgin of Guadalupe in Mexico City, which is not a very beautiful place. I was just there a few days ago. <laughs> but she is very beautiful in the hearts of Mexico, and she is also among the Mazatecs. And uh, this is on top of a mountain in Mazatec country where all sorts of deities are being honored with offerings. Um, I always try to look at how plants, are, how plants play into... Uh, what is offered and how, the different ways that they uh, act as devices of communication, which is what offerings really are. And so she, this tiled painting of, of the Virgin of Guadalupe was added later, maybe I think 15 years ago. But this ridge top has been a place where offerings were made for eons and actually to a male deity who lives in this mountain. And um, he... This, this is a long ridge and out on one end of the ridge is a cave it's very hard to get to and that cave is uh, supposedly his um, home and you really don't go visit him at his home because he's too important you come more this was told to me by a contemporary Mazatec Indian that this is his office and this is where you come <laughs> to leave your your calling cards your, your offerings and Mazatec Indians walk it's a long long foot trail up from the town um, several miles and they walk up the mountainside um, in their good clothes they come and they gather these certain aromatic leaves which you see laying about here as they come because the aroma is always an offering to the to the gods and uh, and bring other things and put them here when they want good luck with business this is a prosperity mountain and one of the things that they always leave everywhere that you see and this is true here too Tristan um, just had some today um, are the cacao beans, the beans of the chocolate plant, another sacred plant in Mexico, native to Mexico and to South America, Central and South America. And these are these, these fat seeds of the, of the chocolate cacao pa uh, pods. And this is a little, you know, shelter for candles so they can burn in the rain. And always everywhere that I go to these sacred places, and sometimes there's nothing more than just a flat rock and some... Uh, some cacao beans laid out and you know that there's something there or someone there that uh, they recognize that they're leaving offerings for. Here's a picture of a cacao pod that has just come off of this tree if you have never seen one. That's probably about 10 inches long and you open it up and it's a white semi-sweet um, pulp with lots and lots of those beans in it. They were used as money by the Maya. They've been used as many things. They're a unit of, of value that is um, edible and magical, both.
<coughs> and I put this in to remind myself to say that uh, now uh, another sacred plant has been added to daily life among the Mazatec, and which I consider psychoactive, and that's coffee, which is what's drying out here on the this slab of cement in a valley. And uh, it we know that coffee actually um, comes from Ethiopia, the mountains of Ethiopia originally, and that it, from the historical record, it looks like it was brought into this area about 150 years ago. But I have asked Mazatec Indians who always have a pot of weak, very sweet coffee boiling on their fire, and they, they don't have burners, they're, they're, they have an ongoing wood fire on a mud covered baked mud table that's how they cook and they will keep a, a pot of this weak sweet coffee going you know 18 hours a day and uh, I've asked them how long they have it I always uh, like to ask about the origin what people think the origin of the plant is that they use because often they have great stories for how the gods brought it or different different uh, sources but um, I wondered if they knew it had been introduced to them and the people I asked said no we have had coffee forever and I questioned that once, and they said, well, how could we not have had coffee forever? Coffee is life. <laughs> Some plants are just grown for beauty around close to dwellings where you can see them as you walk out the door. And I have been told that beauty is protection as well as pleasure. And protection is a major uh, concern to people who do shamanic work. Um, Anne was talking about the shadow today and the shadow within us, but any of us who have traveled and, uh, and participated in ceremonies, healing ceremonies or psychoactive ceremonies in other cultures know that a huge amount of energy goes into watching your back or into keeping the healer's enemies at bay so that this kind of work can be done. And uh, there's really a lot to say about that, and, and I think I will say more about that tomorrow. Um, in terms of what I've seen in other places. But also, so, so throughout all of this, that this element of protection, vulnerability, and what you do, that the corollary is that in order to do this kind of magical work, energy transforming work, you have to create a vulnerable oasis. You have to be willing to be open and be vulnerable. And in order to do that, you have to set up protection around you, around the people you're working with, or in the place you're working. And one of the ways to set up protection is to plant plants that carry that kind of protective power around you. So the Brugmansias are grown there, but not used um, as drugs, not used ceremonially that I'm aware of, uh, but they are, their potency is still recognized by the fact that they are planted in um, relationship to that kind of work. Uh, this is a double blossom of the, um, uh, I don't know, do, do you think this is Brugmansia aurea? Does anybody have an opinion here? Like what? Quadruple, yeah. Uh-huh. Aurea, that's what I was thinking. Maybe it's Aurea, and they do uh, they do mutate or hybridize or something so that they have uh, blossoms inserted within blossoms, and the, those have a certain extra exotic power. Uh, this is the common one that is seen there, and I've taken cuttings and propagated this quite a bit. It just is a very happy Brugmansia. 
it, and it goes through color changes from a very creamy yellow to uh, this sort of color and on to a deeper peach. Um, yes, this is Suaviolans, Brugmansia Suaviolans, yes. And I, I have been told that they use it in the way that uh, people do use Brugmansias also in the Andes and in Asia, I'm told, uh, which is smoking the blossoms for asthma. And I've taken to drying these blossoms and uh, sharing them with a friend who has a chronic low-level asthma, and she has stopped using any other m medication. And I know that the Brugmansias, you know, <clears throat> we hopefully all know that the Turas and Brugmansias are very <clears throat> tricky plants to use, great caution. But just smoking a tiny bit of the dried blossoms of, uh, well, it's, it's a way that I like to approach plants. I don't know. I feel like that's, that's a, a good place to come in with a plant and you can just titrate a tiny dose into yourself by taking one taste and waiting to see what happens you know and the blossom itself has its own its own character um, so that's that's good medicine but it's also planted for protection around houses and um, this is a uh, drawing of a the a remnant of a of a mural wall painting uh, at Teotihuacan, yes, uh, the ruins outside Mexico City. And uh, I put this in because these are people um, apparently doing something that is still done all over the Americas. I just recently experienced it in Ecuador too, um, which is using leaves, using branches of leaves to change, to move energy around. The limpia, maybe those of you who have been to... Uh, spent time in Mexico, been to uh, ayahuasqueros and people of that sort in um, South America have experienced this. It's very common, also in Asia. It's a universal method of cleansing. Limpia means to clean. And um, by taking branches, and including sometimes blossoms, but more often just leaves, but I have seen the, this, uh, let's see, I have seen this blossom or branches of leaves with these blossoms used in limpias also. But by, by waving branches around in the, within a building to change the, uh, the luck, to sweep out what is old, to allow in what is new, especially using them to sweep the aura of a person, <clears throat> not necessarily touching the person, but sometimes during um, intense healing ceremonies, people are brushed and brushed and brushed with leaves. And then, and these leaves, the, the species are chosen, the form of them is chosen to have a certain effect. Um, I'll say more about it or remind me if I don't, but I mean to. And uh, these, uh, these moths that are in here too um, are regularly, regularly considered um, symbols of transformation, the moth, the butterfly, you know. And there are all these associations that are made in... in uh, Mexican um, art with different symbols and the what they represent about plants and the nature of the action that's going on generally because of their whole um, transformation of that life form they are regarded as symbols of that going on also these curly cues coming out of their mouths are said to be songs little little pieces of, of curled commas kind of are can be seen as speech usually and these are songs and songs are a very important part of all of this kind of work 
I want to show you just a few pictures of the, the kind of people that do this. I've worked with four different families of healers now, or four different uh, well, extended family groups in different villages. And um, they grow all their own corn and beans here. The oja santa that we've been eating with our fish down here, you see these, it's a piper species, and you see them in the background there. They're, they're very self-sufficient. They don't use money very much. Really strong people, don't they have great faces? These are two grandsons from two different, in two different directions from a, an old healer. And um, the upper one wants to uh, learn English and he speaks Spanish and Mazatec now and be an international translator and travel all over the world. And the younger one wants to, um, and does actually already, He's the boy in a family of a uh, single mom and three sisters. He grows all their food. He was 10 in this picture. He grows their corn and beans, and he wants to be just like his grandfather, and he's um, paying attention to the, um, to the tradition of uh, curanderismo. I don't know if he's actually apprenticed at this point. So they're, and they're very good friends, but they're very different in terms of the futures that they see in the world. This is a typical ancient path, These uh, and, and me and a guy who was uh, informing, an, an informant, a word that, you know, I try not to use, but uh, <laughs> the, the term coming into, you know, the politically correct term coming in is parabiologist. I know a lot about biology, they're not trained, and they, but they pass it on, and, and so I sometimes call him my parabiologist friend. These paths like this, um, go up through these mountains. Those mountains that I showed you are just crisscrossed with these paths and uh, people have been walking them for so long. I could just get the feeling in Mexico of such a deep awareness of the land, of every inch of it, you know, that has been crossed on foot for so long. And when the roads come in, it really changes things because for many reasons, and I wrote a whole article about roads and coming into Mexico and changing consciousness, which I'd be happy to. I forgot to bring any piece of paper with me to this trip. I don't know what happened, but anyway, not a single thing, but uh, I could send it to someone if you're interested. But um, uh, when you walk on these stone paths, you look, you see everything, you know. It's, I'm sure it was this way here and around the ruins and up those mountains. Um, you keep your eyes open, you monitor. Every, every day when you walk in a life like this is a pilgrimage that ha is in a cycle of seasonal changes and changes brought by humans and changes um, determined by the moods of the deities that you recognize and that can be modified by changes in those deities. So. You know, I, I'd like to convey to you the depth of relationship, the, the, the great conversation that is going on between all of these levels all the time. And when a road goes in where a trail was, then trucks come, Coca-Cola comes, batteries come, measles comes, you know, lots and lots changes very quickly. And uh, people stop looking. They look at the trucks going by. And even this old curandero I worked with, his, the, the road was built down past him. And I said, how has the road changed your life? And he said, now we are like monkeys. Every time someone comes by, we stand up and act like something is important is, important is happening. We have to look at the truck, you know? <laughs> there, 
really some of the finest people I've ever known, these folks. They are so poor. I was uh, at the Salvia Divinorum conference recently with some of you and um, said I was going to go on this trip. And since we were talking about Salvia, which came from Mazatec people and was, you know, harbored by them for 500 years without anybody else knowing about it, I said, well, I'm going there soon and I'm going to bring them some gifts. And, and um, I'm happy to say people gave me $1,500 to take to share with these people, which really, just a little bit to a family, really makes a difference. Um, this is a herbalist midwife. Um, it's so, it's, it's either raining or blazing hot here. You're, you know, at this similar latitude, but a lot higher. And so uh, the sun just really bakes. So uh, the women all carry black umbrellas all the time, and use them in the sun as much as they do in the rain. I took to that myself. And we were on an herb walk. This woman, she didn't speak Spanish. Her brother's with us and uh, was the translator. But she's a midwife. And um, I just find that midwives are a wonderful category of people for mediating um, states of consciousness and knowing about plants and being really good at sharing th what they know. They're a, a, you know, an ancient international network of women who deal with life and death. They're brave. They're very adept at what they do. They just have an incredible body of knowledge. And some of my best friends in California are midwives. I'm connected kind of into a midwife network. And, and, uh, and I look for women like that in, um, when I travel to ask questions. So, you know, it's, you can just walk through these mountains with someone who knows these things and trusts you and um, point to this plant and point to that one and, and you never know what will come to you. You just have to be watching a lot and you gather wonderful bits of information. Tobacco is the other primary sacred plant besides corn in the Americas and um, probably the most uh, persuasive plant on the planet actually. I like to look at plants as having, a plant species as having strategies as because I, I have adopted the native way of seeing each species as a being unto itself. Um, this is a fairly universal earth-based point of view that each species, not each specimen, but each species is a being which had its origin in ancient time as an individual. Um, the human was an individual. Dog was an individual. Tobacco was an individual. Maize was an individual. And they had a relationship and um, some were positive affiliations, some negative. Whoops. And, um, and then gradually, in this way of thinking, gradually as time changed and kind of broke down into the complexity and, the, and went from sacred time to the so-called profane time that we have lived in for a very, for a very uh, long period now, um, then these individual giant beings of a different sort, these primordial essences became, uh, got feet of clay like we did. And they now have many members of themselves that walk or stand here on the planet. But they're all still in the relationships they were in before and each of them is a being. So in that sense, you can go, especially with tobacco because it's just such a you know, heavy duty plant, you can go to anyone who uses tobacco in a traditional or semi-traditional way and who has, um, is open to the idea, to the mythological ideas 
and ask them about the being that tobacco is and, and get stories. And this is true in the hill tribes of Laos, in Africa, and everywhere that it has spread, which is all post-conquest. You know, it moved faster than anything across to Africa and through Asia and up into Europe and, you know, knocked people's socks off wherever it went. But uh, particularly where um, it didn't, where, where people, well, let's see, I should put it the other way around. In its traditional use, it has all of this mythology and these practices which relate to it, which, which cause people to relate to it as though it is a very important um, being with a certain function. And um, there's a lot to say about tobacco in the Americas and there's a lot to say about what went wrong with tobacco as it spread into cultures that don't treat it that way. Uh, but sticking to the Mazatecs, um, this is, by the way, Nicotiana tobacco. This is growing in my garden in California, but it is the one that grows all over the, the highlands, the Mazatec highlands. And uh, this is its blossom. Um, the Mazatecs uh, grow two varieties of tobacco. This one is called San Pedro, St. Peter. Um, as you probably know, he's the saint, the uh, Catholic saint that holds the gates to heaven, the guardian at the gate, and makes the decision about who goes through. And um, they grow another called San Pablo, St. Paul, which is smaller. It was identified originally to me as um, Nicotiana tobacco, but another variety. But I've begun to wonder about that. I'm not sure. I don't think it's rustica because it doesn't look like any Nicotiana rustica I've seen but I'm just not sure, and I don't have a picture of it here. But what they do is they mix, uh, they mix these two tobaccos together, and um, they did that long ago. That's in the in the record that uh, I believe it was called uh, Yetel, the two tobaccos together, Pisietel or Pisiete. It's called now. They call this mixed Pisiete um, now, but that it originally or back several hundred years ago was a mixture of. Uh, Nicotiana tobaccum and Nicotiana rustica. Well, what I know from my experience with them is that they mix San Pablo and San Pedro together, the two saints, and they pray constantly when they are using this tobacco. They don't smoke it. I don't know any Mazatecs who smoke unless they're sort of degraded and in town. They, um, they put it on their altar. They uh, rub it on their bodies during ceremony, and sometimes the elders or people doing uh, magical work will put a little quid of it in their cheeks. Um, here she is grinding on a stone, grinding the two tobacco varieties together. They're wilted leaves. She grinds them until they're a damp green mash, and then she adds uh, a little bit of uh, lime, calcium carbonate, which is called cal in Mexico, and it's what's added to tortillas uh, as well, or to the uh, to the masa, to the corn flour, to make the tortillas the right consistency. It's also added to the tobacco, changes the consistency, makes it fluffier, and then of course it's alkaline, and so it activates in the um, in the mouth if you do use it as a quid. Um, I have asked uh, the most experienced and wisest uh, Mazatec healer that I know what his greatest ally is in the plant world because he works with various species of mushrooms, he works with other plants, 
and he works with tobacco. And he said, oh, absolutely, San Pedro, San Pedro y San Pablo. Um, he said, if, if I lived on this earth and I could only have one plant to do my work, I would do it with tobacco. And I asked the same question of a healer in Ecuador and he, who used ayahuasca and a number of other things. He said, tobacco, absolutely tobacco. You can't communicate without tobacco and you can't protect without tobacco. The other work you can do on your own if you have to, but you have to be able to communicate above and you have to be able to draw that line of protection around you and that's what you can do with tobacco. Tobacco is a prayer plant. And so they say, these people say, murmuring all the time whenever they're working with tobacco, whenever they're even praying and they don't have tobacco with them, they start out by saying, San Pablo, San Pedro, San Pablo, San Pedro, trying to get their attention. And then they ask, they have this sense of hierarchy, they ask that San Pablo and San Pedro, please listen, please protect us, please carry our message to the next level. Generally, the next level is to the Virgin of Guadalupe. So they say, please go to Guadalupe and ask for her to give us her attention. We have something to ask of her. We have something to say to her. And so they see these, these they see St. Peter and St. Paul as, um, as transmitters, you know. And he said, um, said, Paul, we have to go out there and do something. And Paul, who was a contemplative in real biblical time, but Paul, I was told, Paul was lazy. That's what the Mazatec Curandera told me. Paul, she said, have you ever known anyone who didn't like to work? Like, this is an unthinkable thing. And <laughs> I said, uh, yes. And <laughs> she said, well, that's what San Pablo was like. He didn't like to work, you know. So he said, San Pedro, you go out and you do the work out there outside the gate and I will do the thinking inside the gate. I'll stay here and think. And so they work together that way, and that's why you blend them together, because you want someone inside doing the work, you want someone outside doing the work. Now, another person that I asked said, well, they may be called San, San Pedro and San Pablo, but San Pedro is actually female because she grows wherever she wants to and you can't control her. And um, <laughs> San Pablo is male, and the Mazatecs always do everything in pairs, and they always acknowledge the masculine and the feminine. They measure out all of their plant um, allies in pairs. They, they, I have been told, have a, a, their notion of God is hermaphroditic. The sun, hermaphroditic, and that you don't ever talk to God. You talk to those under God. That God is really preoccupied. And you, you talk to um, San Pedro, San Pablo, you talk to Guadalupe, you talk to some of the other saints, everyone has different allies. Those saints match up to other ancient deities, and this is what you do in every one of the psychoactive ceremonies as well. Here's a typical, you know, indigenous peasant altar, a table, the only table they had. They had one small table in the little kitchen house. This is a tiny two-room um, house, and... Uh, they put flowers on it, gladiolas particularly. They say that the Virgin loves gladiolas. And, um, and when you come, when you ask for uh, help in a ceremony, as I did when I first came and then many times after that, you bring gifts. And most, in my experience, most healers in the Americas, you bring them tobacco. And part of your job, if you're coming to ask for some work on your behalf is to find out exactly what kind of tobacco they like because they're just like Americans. They're really fussy about their tobacco. <laughs> and, and, but with these people, you can't even buy this mix. They, you, it's just grown and given or traded um, 
under the table, so you wouldn't even bring them tobacco because it's too special. But you would ask about the kind of beeswax, beeswax candles they want, and they sniff them, and they can tell from the smell of the candle before it's been burned uh, the quality of it, and even sometimes the plants that the bees were going to and were... Um, in, you know, as they were making their hive, and so then that goes into that scent goes into the wax, and those will be burned. And often, the length of a portion of one of these ceremonies, a mushroom ceremony or a salvia, something will not salvia, mushroom ceremony, and some of these healing ceremonies would be the length of time that the candle burns. So they tell you how long the candle has to be. Some of the candles are four feet long, and they're huge. You know, you don't see those very often. You go to have someone who custom makes them. And then pictures of the various saints that um, that uh, particularly have, for some reason, have come to this family as uh, as the most useful. These people never go to church. They couldn't remember how many years it had been. If you know, maybe once, twice when they were children. It's not. They incorporate certain Catholic elements, but they are not church-going people. They have their ceremonies. This is their altar. And uh, they're most famous for mushrooms. Um, I think several of you have already mentioned to me that you went to uh, Wautla in the 70s or, you know, the late 60s when people were hearing that um, mushroom use was happening among the mountains in the mountains of Mexico and you could go up there and um, take uh, mushrooms. There was a wave of hippies that... Um, is this squeaking all the time in your ears or just mine? Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, so uh, so that, that hit like a tidal wave up there and really changed Wautla and uh, it went through a kind of a you know burst with all these people discovering this Indian village and then, and then the darker repercussions of that and then shut down and many people said later that in the latter days of that wave that Mazatec people seemed very unfriendly and you know, it was just too much of an onslaught of another culture that was not, most people were not sensitive. They were not going as, um, you know, ethnobotanists or even sensitive seekers. Uh, but to this day, you can walk around the hills above, around the town and or get off the bus, in fact, and be approached by people, you know, ongos, ongos, and it's, um, that means mushrooms. And there are sort of hotels, a couple left, where you can go and, get a little dark room with graffiti on the walls and be given mushrooms. And I, I really um, discourage doing that. I don't think it's respectful to the people and the culture there, and I don't also think you necessarily will have a great experience. Um, what I do think is interesting is to look at the way, to emulate the way they look at these species. They have They deal with People say different things. I've heard 14 different species of um, psilocybe mushrooms, and, or psilocybin mushrooms, psilocybin and psilocin-containing mushrooms. And um, I saw the use of four different species. And they each have a different folk name, a different character. These people know their mushrooms so well, even though they have the same chemicals in them largely, they have them in slightly different ratios in each species. But what they see is that they are actually a different being. And you would go to one for a certain kind of ceremony, for a certain problem, for a certain type of celebration. And you would go to another for another uh, activity. And so 
it's just like we would go to um, a certain friend for something she knew to a chiropractor if our neck were out to a uh, herbalist if you you know had ongoing digestive problems I mean you just choose your allies and you go to the appropriate one and so there are many different species there um, that this one actually is probably um, Psilocybe serolescens and um, the curled edge maybe two different varieties of it the difference in color I didn't have time to uh, you know I just witnessed these I didn't uh, take these back but the first trip there I did collect specimens of every mushroom every psilocybin containing mushroom that I saw and took them back and did my best to get them ID'd and um, and propagate them because uh, you know they're I mean take spore prints and, and see what you can do because they are each very different we've been taking cubensis Psilocybe cubensis for years, Drafaria cubensis, it has also been called. And, um, you know, that's the one that, that was easily grown beginning in the mid-70s and proliferated throughout the um, United States and probably Europe too, I assume. And it was easy to grow and it, you know, has been called the mushroom as though it were the only one and as though it is the only um, kind of portrait of a psilocybin-containing mushroom that existed. Well, they call um, Psilocybe cubensis, the one that we're so familiar with, San Isidro. And San Isidro is the, uh, the patron saint of laborers, Saint Isidore. The patron saint of laborers, laborers go to him for their, their protector. And you would go, you would take um, cubensis if you were interested in starting a particular piece of work. If you were going to clear a piece of hillside and, and plow a new field there, or if you were going to try to start a business and you wanted the blessing, you wanted problems with that solved, you would go to the one that watches out for work. But you wouldn't necessarily go to Cubensis for a healing ceremony. You wouldn't necessarily go for um, uh, to sing pans of praise to Guadalupe. Psilocybe, uh, I mean, um, yes, Psilocybe, uh, Mexicana is uh, los pajaritos, the little birds, and that one they say often brings happiness. It brings delight. Now it can also bring tears. I know because I have been in ceremonies with them where they measured out um, it was 37 pairs of of uh, los pajaritos to each one of us on a leaf like this, and they measure, as I say, every single thing in pairs. And we did. We sang the praises of the world together. We, uh, everyone takes these, these mushrooms in a ceremony in front of that altar or an altar like that that you see. You know, it was a family of four. Um, three of us took the mushrooms. And um, this was not for a healing ceremony. This was just to um, say thank you, basically, to see what is and say thank you. And... and uh, these people really know how to pray. They really know how to ask for help in the world, but they know just as well how to say how grateful they are. And I do find that among very poor, very simple living people um, all over, that if they're dealing with spirit and they're dealing with this kind of, uh, of uh, invocation, 
they always say thank you many times. They describe what they're thankful for. They describe this beautiful world. They describe their beautiful grandchildren. They get into it, you know, and really say thank you. And they ask that this that a little bit more food be grown so they just have enough in the dry season. That a little that the rains come on time. That um, that the the police leave them alone. That whatever it is, you know, I mean, not. It's not a drug question. It's just the Indians are such, uh, you know, they're they're just still uh, really, really second-class citizens in Mexico, and um, they do get into trouble, um, and it's hard to get out of, and uh, they have so little power. But they know to say thank you. That's the point I'm making. That gratitude, that respect, and that gratitude is really a part of the uh, of the formula. Uh, these are a couple of old slides that I didn't take of Maria Sabina, the renowned uh, shaman, shamaness of Mexico. Um, she was, you know, discovered uh, by Wasson and his entourage and, in the uh, late 50s and um, 60s. She was a phenomenon. She was at the core of the whole wave that hit Oaxaca and Huautla. She also, it's in, I think it's very interesting that, um, that this kind of ancient plant-based shamanism was discovered in terms of the Western attention in um, Mexico and not somewhere else since it does exist in folk cultures around the world and it was discovered as a woman's practice. There are areas where there are many women um, shamanic figures and there are other areas where there are very few and they're mostly men but she became the emblematic uh, shaman of the world and probably will hold that position for a long time she was very good at what she did um, these are mushrooms in this box these are I think one is her daughter and uh, people that you know a number of healing ceremonies were witnessed where she ate the mushrooms, the patients ate the mushrooms, other people ate the mushrooms. She sang. She was really a good poet and singer of the songs that, are, that carry a lot of the spirit of the mushroom and the, the invocation of that spirit and then what the mushroom says. And, ha- and, and she says that. She speaks for the mushroom out into the room, into the people there, um, seeing and revealing and asking, uh, answering the questions they have asked. I, you know, fully admire the work that I know of that she did, as we probably all do, but I have to say that there have been, uh, that there are many other fine healers, and she wasn't the last, and she wasn't the only one, and there are men and women, and there are new ones coming along. This is her in a state of prayer and a mushroom ceremony. Uh, these are contemporary women who use these mushrooms. This is actually a mushroom deal going down right now. And <laughs> that, that little green packet <laughs> looks menacing, doesn't it? <laughs> um, that little green packet is a banana leaf packet, which is the way that mushrooms are packaged. And <laughs> um, after this, we walked outside. She's, she's handing her money. And, and the one on the right is a, is a very highly thought of midwife also, but a midwife who is doing, you know, that's the thing is you deliver babies and you do these healing ceremonies and you help people die. It's all, all these skills all come together, you know. 
And so then we walked out on the street and the one of the, the women in pink, her son, who was collecting mushrooms, came up and opened his leaf full of mushrooms to show her what he had collected that day because she provides midwives and others with mushrooms. And, um, and I, we were standing right on the little street in front of her house, and I said, you can just, like, flash your mushrooms out like this right on the street? And they both looked at me like, what do you know? And they said, well, it's not marijuana. <laughs> You see how, why you can't smoke at the ruins. You could eat mushrooms at the ruins, probably. <laughs> and the, the shamanic accoutrements are sold in marketplaces all over Mexico, this is true, but this is in the Mazatec marketplace. These are the various kinds and qualities of beeswax candles. The um, oh, certain kinds of feathers, parrot feathers, um, a powder, uh, pounded uh, tree bark or the cambium layer of a, of a tree, amate, that is um, pounded into a kind of paper. You may have seen artwork done on it, but they use it. They use these soft pieces of it that feel like fabric to wrap offerings, and they and protective packets which they place in their eaves and bury under the corners of their little property and do different magical things like that because they're always working on all of these levels, even in daily life, even in non psychedelic life, just watching what's strange. You know, if a, if a bird you're not used to seeing comes and sits on a tree outside your window and calls and calls and calls, it's not just a bird on a trip. You know, it's a, it's a bird that has a message that it is sending you that may be positive, may be a warning. It's something you pay attention to. If um, I've seen in the, in the Amazon, if a certain butterfly changes its path and flies through the, the uh, open-air shelter that you're under and doubles back and flies through again or alights on somebody, they read it as a message. They stop and pay attention. The conversation stops, you know. There's this way of tracking uh, life forms and their activities where they are taken as part of the same conversation that we're all in. Um, these eggs here are used also in, um, in these protective packets. And another thing done with eggs is in these limpias. And now, who was talking about this? Someone in the last couple of days was talking about Oh, I know, it was um, Manolo talking about the mucus dripping on the mirror and then reading it and telling something about health and the future and all of that kind of stuff, right? Well, what it made me think of is the way that people, again, throughout the Americas, use eggs, rub them on people's bodies to do a reading, to absorb the energy. Eggs are considered a sort of a, a fluid kind of lens, and you take the egg and you rub it some people rub it so hard it practically pulls your hair out, but it doesn't quite break the, the eggshell. Some people rub it more lightly, almost just hardly touching you. But they rub it all over you, and they're asking for it to absorb the energy that you're carrying so that they can read something about you. And then they crack it into a glass of water. I've seen this in Mexico and Ecuador and Peru. They crack it into a glass of water, and they watch how that egg white flows and any little specks of color or anything that might be in there. And they tell you, what's wrong with you, and then they know, they get their branches and their flowers and their leaves and they, and they sweep you and they clean you because they've just seen this x-ray of how you are. It might be a magical illness, it might be a physical illness, there isn't usually much distinction in this worldview, you know, because physical illness is usually started from magical causes, but sometimes they'll say, well, you, you know, as Manola said, you need to go to a doctor. 
Um, but usually they'll work on it because it's something that was sent at you, something that you did wrong that opened you up to an imbalance. It has a lot to do with balance and keeping your center clear and staying in balance. I know Maria Sabina uh, in some of her songs, she says, um, you follow the path of the, can I say that right, the path of the track of your hands. This is the path of your action. Where have you been? What have you been doing? If you are out of balance, you follow your action backwards in your memory, in ceremony, together with her, until you find that moment where something went askew. And then, in time, in that state of mind, you can set that moment and that action in balance and move forward from that still in your mind to the present, and then you'll be well. So it's a way of healing yourself by dealing with the past in the present, but taking a certain responsibility you may have been startled by something. Uh, susto is a famous illness of the Americas. You know, susto is a is a kind of getting uh, suddenly knocked off balance by something unexpected, and uh, then that opens you up in a way that doesn't necessarily come back into harmony. So it's a it's a seeking of harmony of the interior self that creates health, and these ceremonies really work to do that. Some of the people among the Mazatec still wear the old dress and uh, weepil. This is the colors of this village, this area. All the Mazatec people each have their own combinations of colors and um, stripes and embroidery from each village. And uh, and I, I just wanted to... I use my slides as my notes, you know, because I, I just don't seem to write notes. So... Um, uh, so this one is this woman on the right she's a young uh, curandera um, she's well she's probably 50 now but she's been doing this since she was in her early 30s she's buying some supplies for a ceremony from these women in their traditional dress still um, she's an example of the ongoing um, tradition the living tradition of dealing with these mushrooms and she particularly uh, does like mushrooms she doesn't use salvia divinorum um, she only speaks Mazatec only understands Mazatec not Spanish but she has a speech impediment and she can't even pronounce Mazatec the only person who understands her is her niece who is apprenticed to her as a healer her niece when I worked with them was 12 and the niece understood these sort of very soft vowel sounds that she made and translated for her in Spanish or Mazatec to other people. So she was with her all the time. They both studied under this woman's mother who died just a few years ago who was a, a renowned healer. And um, the little girl, I told this story at the Salvia conference, the little girl the, who was 12 um, at this time uh, said she had been sitting at her grandmother's knee during ceremonies, taking mushrooms, eating mushrooms in, in these healing ceremonies since she was two years old, or at least she remembered it since she was two years old. And um, she just is so grounded and really quite an amazing young woman. And um, I asked her how she knew how many mushrooms to eat when she was just a little child. I, I asked her how, her how many her grandmother gave her, and she said she didn't give them to me. She just put out a bowl of mushrooms in front of me and let me eat them. And I said, how did you know how many to eat? And she said, I just ate them until I arrived. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> uh, 
And this is um, Salvia divinorum, which probably most of you have seen, if not seen, at least seen pictures of it. It grows very um, green and moist in the green and moist places in the Oaxacan hills, uh, in little glens. People don't grow up by their houses. They don't grow up by roads. They don't grow where anybody sees it. They traditionally at least, and in the people I've worked with, um, grow it far from where they live, off in little hidden glens that are kind of shady, very quiet, often where a little bit of a, of a creek is running by or by a spring, and um, it's allowed to grow and fall, and the nodes touch the moist earth and they sprout again. So it does that thing. If you've grown salvia yourself, you know, uh, it likes to restart. It likes to be... Uh, uh, cuttings to be made and to be restarted. The old woody stems after two or three years in a pot um, are not very happy. Well, they don't do it that way here either. They um, re-sprout from the moist earth. Um, that's another and sometimes the sun can give it that bit of color. This plant is called, uh, this one is in, uh, yeah, so you can see the shape of the flower and the legginess of the plant and this is the uh, blossom up close. I think it just looks like a dancing woman to me. Um, this plant is also called Shka Pastora. That means, Shka means leaves in Mazatec. Um, Shka Pastora, Shka means leaf. And, uh, or Hojas de la Pastora, the leaves of the shepherdess. And um, there's speculation about the history of that name and the um, implications of it. But uh, my feeling is that uh, they are recognizing this very calm, large, protecting female spirit, being that is in this plant. And uh, the, the pastora aspect of it comes from the fact that she does just put her arms out and protect people in a very gentle way and they recognize her definitely as female and have ceremonies eating these leaves measured out in pairs um, <clears throat> throughout the year, but particularly in the non-mushroom time of year. The mushroom season is fairly short, just several months in the um, wet summer, and they don't preserve and dry the mushrooms. At least I haven't, I haven't seen that happening. So um, salvia is something that they might use in other times of the year. Um, they take this plant in total darkness um, and total quiet. It's a very delicate state of mind in their estimation and in my experience. And uh, you wouldn't disrupt it by having light or noises outside or even singing or any kind of activity inside, very, very still. The mushrooms are taken in, the other things will happen. They have candles burning, they have, um, you know, you gaze upon um, icons and flowers and stone and all of that. Uh, the, the healer during the mushroom session may sing definitely these wonderful, wonderful, strange songs um, or even dance a little bit. The most amazing shamanic moment, or one of the two most amazing moments I have ever seen, was a, um, a old corandero on a very high dose of mushrooms, uh, with all of us in that state, uh, doing a dance that I have to say reminded me of Charlie Chaplin. You know the dance with the baked potatoes? Remember that one? <laughs> 
where like oh just a, this great old movie anyway <laughs> he did this did this this man did this uh, very uh, just it was like he became a cartoon it was like he was acting out the spirit of the mushroom you know and he moved across the floor and back and several times flickering his hands in a certain way and doing this thing that was it was comical it was making us laugh tears you know <laughs> and um, it was just absolutely beautiful but on the I'm, I hope it's okay I'm kind of jumping back and forth here but the salvia uh, experience would be in the dark and very still and well, before I did my first salvia experience with them which is what they suggested to me when I went to ask about my heart um, they did uh, you know Anne was talking about working with people who who need healing and kind of coming in on that psychological level knowing them and loving them even if they're new to you and they really did that with me they really interviewed me about my life for hours before the day before and then the day of it more questions and try to understand where I had lost my balance, you know, where my pain was coming from. And um, so they, even though I was talking about a different world, you know, they um, got it. They got the same elements because they're there. They're, you know, they're looking at your luck. They're looking at your, if your parents are alive or not. Are they looking at your, whether your husband is taking care of you or not and how your children are and um, what your work is and you know those are the same questions they would ask someone in their world and um, so they knew something about me and um, then we went into this ceremony and they told me uh, to they asked me if I really knew how to pray and I said well I think so but you probably can teach me something and they said well if you don't know how to pray you're going to learn how to pray tonight mm -hmm. and um, they did uh, really insist that I out loud it has to be out loud and this I've learned from Native Americans uh, up north too um, you really need to at least part of the time speak to the entity that you are invoking the presence of that the whole idea with these medicines is to go into an active right now relationship between beings. It's interspecies communication. And to say, say their name and say it out loud and praise them, tell them how beautiful they are or whatever it is you know about them and, and thank them throughout for what you are receiving and ask them for what you need. And they say, you know, if you don't address them and you don't ask for what you need, you probably don't really believe that you deserve it and and they're not going to know to take you seriously and you stay in that mode you don't drop out of it so um, they encouraged me and began by praying in Mazatec and and Spanish a bit and then would say now it's your turn and like 10 15 minutes of me just speaking constantly and I had to get over my self-consciousness and I was in an altered state very powerful altered state you know and uh, because when it works, salvia is really powerful. I mean, this is just eating the leaves. There's a lot to say about all of this, and I, it's, it'll be too long, and I can't see my watch, so I don't know how long I'm going on right now. Does anybody know how we're doing on time? Ten. So, so what? Another tw twenty minutes? Okay. Um. um Yes, I would inject the question was was I ingesting the salvia? Yes. Um, uh, they measure out pairs of leaves 
many pairs in my experience with them, um, you know, 20, 30, 40 pairs, and uh, it's really a lot of leaves. Of course, the leaves can, salvia leaves can go from several inches long to a foot long. I've grown them a foot long, so, um, some, but say somewhere in between, and they, they roll them up. The people I've worked with roll them up into a big cigar, uh, and then you just start at one end, and you just eat all the way through to the end. Huh. And you, you're, yeah, you swallow it. it. You swallow all of it. It doesn't do anything. There's no ill effect on the stomach. I think this, they say chew it very, very well. So to whatever extent the you know, oral activity the, uh, is a factor, you've got it in your mouth for a long time. And, um, and then, you, yeah, you just swallow it down. And it, I never actually timed it, given the circumstances, but um, I'd say like 45 minutes of a very strong state and then another 45 minutes of a milder state. And, um, and, it is, it, and they said, these are the things that they said, and, you know, I'm just I'm sharing them. These, this is what I was told, and it worked. Um, is uh, that you must stay facing the altar, stay in a prayerful mode the whole time, be in total darkness. Only sound should be you speaking or if someone else is praying with you, you know. And um, not to have had sex for three days before, nor to have it for three days after. And that's a, that's a fairly standard prescription for a lot of psychoactives in, in native use because of that openness factor, because of the vulnerability factor and a kind of contamination of spirit and, um, and not to laugh through the entire salvia session. That's a really important rule. And I, they didn't say that about mushrooms and I haven't heard that about ayahuasca. I mean, people don't generally have, you know, big laughing fits during ayahuasca, but um, they do sometimes drink mushrooms. And sometimes, I, I, I know people are tempted to during salvia, but uh, I was told several times, absolutely do not give in to that. And I was told that salvia divinorum, which is not what we're looking at right now, that <laughs> salvia divinorum is like the deer. And some people say the word Mazatec, the name of these people, means those who worship the deer or the deer-loving people. And, you know, I asked them why. I mean, they have very little animal protein that they can hunt anymore. They do eat um, armadillos when they can get them. But um, but I asked them why they... I didn't see any deer. I'd been staying there a long time, and they talk about deer. And they said, well, they're all gone. We scared them all away. But they regard them as a sacred animal still. And then they told me at another time that the salvia was like a deer. It's very shy, and if you startle it, it will disappear again. That you have to listen for her to whisper to you what it is you need to know. It's that kind of uh, delicate relationship. So this is uh, Rivea coriambosa, also sometimes called Turbina coriambosa. It's uh, part of another complex of plants that they use, which are morning glory seeds. This is in the Convolvulaceae, the morning glory family, and has a little round brown seed and is also called Semillas de la Virgen, the Seeds of the Virgin. You know, so many of these plant names go back to um, these entities and often to a great female entity. Sorry, but it is true. Um, <laughs> and uh, the Seeds of the Virgin are um, used... Um, this, Well, both species, I guess, actually, 
um, are used throughout, or, or were until, at least until the later 20th century, used throughout the state of Oaxaca by many different Indian groups, not just the Mazatecs. And um, this is one of the species. These are little brown seeds. And then the other um, species that I have seen used is Ipomea violacea. And if you've ever grown the showy morning glories in the garden, you know that they're a big funnel-shaped flower, um, the typical morning glory. This is the same species. This is a mutation. And every time I have, three times I have collected the seeds among the Mazatecs of the morning glory that they use for their ceremonies, morning glory seeds that they use. This is the, uh, they use these mutations that are basically the funnel has deteriorated into um, a multiflora kind of effect where it has many, many petals. Here's another one. I've seen it in both of these colors and I'm told that it grows um, in a, another uh, shade as well. And um, they prefer it to even the same species that has uh, an intact funnel. Now Schultes and others reported the use of morning glory seeds, Ipomea violacea, um, but it was the, you know, all the illustrations are of the full funnel-shaped flower. So I don't know if this is a more recent mutation that became widespread. These seeds were collected over three villages um, in the high Sierra of the Mazatecs, and this is what um, they, they prefer. Again, this was, I, I got this from a woman who supplies plants to midwives, and it, the seeds are used for uh, vision, but they're also used in birth. Um, it's uh, a uterine contractant, the ergot kind of compounds in the seeds um, have that action and so they say when a mother is stuck, when the baby is stuck and the mother cannot let the baby go, they give her, they grind up some seeds and they give her a dose of that and she begins to dream and the baby comes quickly. So they're using it, a psychoactive in birth medicinally. And also it is used for a kind of, um, now I haven't, I haven't encountered this use directly, I've just talked to people who say they use it, I haven't seen it or experienced it myself yet, but that they will um, take uh, one to two Coke bottle caps full of the seeds and grind them and uh, sluice them with a little bit of water and strain that or not strain it, I've heard it both ways, give that to a person Often late at night, a, a curandero, a, a shaman figure, will give will give the seeds to someone who wants to know about the future, or wants to know some kind of divination question, and will ceremonially prepare this and give this to him or to her uh, late at night, and then she will become sleepy and will lie down, curl up there on a mat in the curandero's house, and and dream until dawn when the patient or the seeker will awaken and tell their dreams to the corandero and he or she will tell them what the answer is by interpreting the dreams that come from sleeping in the state having taken these seeds. And um, this is a whole different ceremony, not psychoactive plants, but I just have had it impressed upon me over and over among the Mazatecs and all the people that I work with in all these different places that, uh, that there's really something going on with leaves generally and so last time I was up there I was there for a shorter visit and 
And I was just about to leave and get on the bus. And he said, well, you're not going to leave before the uh, ceremony of the, um, the uh, Stations of the Cross, are you? And I was like not tuned into that that was happening. Hadn't planned, hadn't planned on, I, I mean, I didn't even know when. And so those of you who have Catholic background know about the Stations of the Cross, and maybe others do. Um, you know the places that um, Christ passed through when he was, this is really backing a lot, when he was um, trekking with the cross to his destination and the stories that happened at a, several places, particularly when he fell and would have, have interactions with different people. Well, all of these stories have been passed down and I was not raised Catholic, but I know that there, the reenactments of various sorts of these stations of the cross occur um, in Catholic ceremonies around the world. So these people have one that they do through the town on a certain day in relationship to Easter each year. And um, everyone in the town comes out for it. Women come down from all over the mountains, because many, many people, many more live out in the mountains than live in town. This is in Wildla. And they come in early in the morning, and the women have, as they've come, gathered two species of aromatic leaves. You can see them holding these bundles of leaves in their hands. And they walk through the streets. Now the young, the acolytes are carrying a censer there of uh, copal incense, the tree sap from this area, Mesoamerica, that is burned in all sacred ceremonies, <coughs> ancient and contemporary. And um, these people, these women are carrying these bundles of leaves, and they carry them through the streets and then comes along in the procession here this larger-than-life body of Christ dressed in velvets on this cot that they're lifting up with the, the purple um, canopy over him. And as he comes along, people are um, taking their leaves and reaching up and rubbing along his body. That's what they're trying to do there, to gather the, the light, to gather the, the power of Christ, the the sun god, you know, in the, in, if you look at it from larger mythological terms. And um, it's, it was amusing to me because all along at each station of the cross, each family that has the privilege to represent that station that year, and that's a changing cargo system of privilege that has happens in all these, uh, these Mesoamerican towns, um, they, uh, to par as part of their decorations, of the station, they put all they they go up and harvest all these branches, and they put them along their uh, either side of their house in huge pots. And the men who have not gathered branches of leaves in the um, hills, they're also in the parade, and they get carried away. And everybody wants leaves to to sweep the light from Christ down. So they start grabbing them out of the decorations, and so soon the men have leaves too. <laughs> They've just taken them out of the vases, and. Um, and so people are sweeping this and then they turn and, and um, sometimes they'll turn and sweep each other or there'll be old people who can't reach up or who are walking really slowly and they'll sweep them with the leaves and they'll transfer the light and the energy from the Christ figure to each other or they'll, I asked some of the women, they will take them home to people who are too sick or unable to walk who are at home and sweep them there or they will just hang the leaves by their front door and they say it just carries the light they carry the light they carry this good energy and this is what I've just seen everywhere is that there's this belief underlying all these practices um, that that leaves that plants um, 
<clears throat> but leaves particularly hold energy. They transmit energy, that they can pick up energy here with intention and they can carry it and they can do something else with it over there. And it's, um, it's a, a way of seeing um, how plant material is a living, uh, what, a carrier, a document of our requests and our intentions and the power of nature and the invocation of spirit and action. You know, all of these things come together in it. And I think it is really useful to look at the psychoactive plants that we know and love or would like to know and love as having that aspect too. I know it has nothing to do with chemistry. It is not scientific. It, has, it is not documentable. It's just a way of seeing that millions of people, I believe, have participated in for a very long time. So it's got a morphogenetic field, as Rupert Sheldrake would say, of belief that, um, that plants, these living beings that are standing around us all the time watching what we do, uh, that they're actually participating in energy transmission in a way that is slower and subtler than what we're used to, but in a way that is recognized by people. And I think there are ways we do it unconsciously in our modern life in terms of the plants we choose to have growing in our houses and the images that we put on the cloth that we wear, often botanical, that there are just um, not only that there are things of beauty and that they're living things, but that there's actually a kind of a, an inherent... Um, character energy in plant material that is uh, behind a lot of, of uh, ritual and healing that goes on in the in the world and and certainly among these people and I think the last slide and this is um, you know just all the elements that I've been talking about the copal burning on the ground a, a plant resin the tobacco on the table, the offerings of certain flowers that please certain deities, and um, somebody, you know, on his knees in a mode of of honoring, honoring, making offerings, and uh, working on all these levels all the time, um, in the belief that uh, all the levels from the most earthy and the most humble to the highest have to be in communication in order for the whole picture to stay together. So that's my talk. Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. I have to admit that I found this talk to be quite humbling as I think about how little I actually know about the living earth, particularly when compared to the knowledge and wisdom of these indigenous communities. You know, it's, uh, it's so easy to slip into a feeling of superiority when comparing our high-tech lives with people who are mainly living simpler lives. But what has actually happened, I think, is that many of us have replaced ancient knowledge uh, with technical knowledge rather than instead augmenting the wisdom of our ancestors with our newly developed information. Recently I saw a documentary that was simply titled Dirt and if you haven't seen it yet I highly recommend it. And uh, what's the big deal about dirt you ask? Of course you would only ask that question if you were a techie geek like me and didn't already know that dirt is uh, wonderfully, amazingly alive. 
We here in the uh, psychedelic community all seem to share an interest in the plant world, and yet I seldom hear much about the foundation from which these plants spring. And I'll leave it at that for now, but uh, check out the documentary Dirt if you get a chance, and I think it'll give you an entirely new understanding of some of the issues that we're now having to face due to uh, our worldwide dependence upon monoculture farming to feed us. It's a uh, serious problem that isn't going to go away simply by ignoring it. And uh, so I hope that you uh, better inform yourself about dirt and uh, maybe even start a little garden of your own. Not only will it be satisfying, uh, it'll be a lot of fun too. Now, uh, getting back to the talk we just heard, uh, let me take you back to where early on in Kat's talk she said to pay attention, for example, when a bird you aren't used to seeing sits outside your window and calls over and over. For many years now, I've made it a practice that when something out of the ordinary in nature happens uh, nearby me, that I make it a point to focus on whatever thought I was just having. That uh, probably sounds more like a superstition, but it's actually brought up some amazing ideas for me. You see, the way I see it is that Mother Nature or Gaia or Lady Ayahuasca or whatever you want to call the animating spirit of this planet Well, I think that maybe that spirit can influence a bird to fly close by in front of me or cause a rabbit or a squirrel or some other wild animal to approach me or something like that. And if I also suppose that Gaia can read my mind, well, then I figure that uh, this out-of-place sign from nature is her way of putting an exclamation point on a thought that I was just having. And so I spend more time thinking about that particular idea than I probably would have done otherwise. Yeah, that's kind of corny, I guess, but maybe you ought to try it the next time uh, something like that happens to you and uh, see what you were thinking about that maybe was important. Well, that had better do it for today because uh, we're already way longer than I like, and so I'll close this podcast again by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And if you're interested in some of the stories that uh, may or may not have led you and me to where we are sharing this moment together, well, you can uh, read a few of them in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available in Kindle and other ebook formats, as well as a pay-what-you-can audiobook that is uh, read by me. And uh, you can find out more about that at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>